0: It is so hard to interrupt that music sometimes. And it just dawned on me that I should tell you what you're listening to and why I chose the piece that I chose and why I choose the pieces that I choose. I mean, I do tell you, just so that you know. You you can go to the website and look at the featured episode, and it's right there in the episode notes. So if you're ever wondering about the featured music or the featured art, go to the website, wellwordchristian.com, and you can find it for yourself. And uh, you'll also find excellent supplementary quotes, as well as articles and blogs and more. And if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support it, it's actually really helpful if you go to our website or you go to our Facebook or YouTube or Twitter accounts and you interact with our content. That, uh, that is in- incredibly helpful. And I think you'll actually enjoy it. So uh, please go ahead and do that if you are interested. But anyway, th- that was a piece by Hans Liszt. List? Liszt? L-I-S-Z-T. Liss? Not really sure. He's a Hungarian composer from the 19th century, and he knew Nietzsche personally, and that piece was his sonata in B minor. And it's often considered to be one of the most influential and powerful sonatas since Beethoven's uh, Moonlight Sonata, of course. And I chose it because it is often characterized as the last best work of the Romantic era, which would soon be crushed by World War One and some of the ideas that Nietzsche talks about. So, uh, and then, of course, I have a great oil on canvas uh, that perhaps you see as artwork for this episode, and uh, definitely go to the episode notes at wellwardchristian.com to find more information there, and I wrote a little blurb on that. I won't get into it because I'm already talking too much without getting into the subject matter. But before I move on too quickly, I also want to say that you're listening to the Wellward Christian Podcast. My name is Mark Stanley, and we are continuing a series on Frederick Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals today. And for those who are listening to this episode before listening to the last one, I'm actually just going to go ahead and say you should listen to the last episode. Um, this is going to be pretty much a continuation. You can almost think of this as part two of Where Did Morality Come From? Although I would like to say that Nietzsche's overview that I gave last week is, is very broad and it sets a great foundation to understanding Nietzsche's views in its in, in, in its totality. So not only Nietzsche's view of you morality as a weapon, and a crafty weapon that people launch on one another, but then also morality as the way that that people justify their own behavior to themselves. Well, why do you act the way that you act? Well, because I'm moral, not because I'm cowardly or weak, or but because I'm patient and I'm kind. And so, in summary, after let's say you just listened, but you know it, it was long, of course, and this episode I'm sure will be long. And so, and t- to summarize number one ideas are parasites used to control other people and there's no such thing as truth truth is just a religious word used to convince others of your point of view number two morality was originally a weaponized idea used to infiltrate your enemies and put them under your control number three christian morality has so devastatingly taken over european culture that we are absolutely blind to it we we, we can't even fathom how much we are influenced by a christian morality and then of course number four this fake and false morality needs to be exposed for what it is and overthrown and the only thing that i actually agree with is number three which is that christian morality has taken over european culture and that that influence is continually on the decline and that is also nietzsche and i will agree one of the reasons why europe and of course the west in general the united states and canada are experiencing a spike in nihilism and violence and drug use and all kinds of bad things is because we lack a purpose or a meaning or something transcendent and, and powerful. And, uh, of course, last episode we also talked about how Nietzsche knew that this would happen, and the the foundation of the Western culture and, and Western inspiration is a Christian morality, is a Christian message. And he predicted that once you take that out, then collectivists will rise up and, and promise progress and, and rivers of blood in order to satisfy the answers to the questions that we still have, even if our answers are, are gone. Then he was absolutely dead right. The three atheistic regimes that rose up in the 20th century were, of course, Mao's China, Stalin's Russia, and Hitler's Germany. And we talked about this extensively. So again, I'd invite you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't, because very important groundwork was laid. So, in Where Does Morality Come From? Almost a part two, we are going to talk about the fact that as Christianity is disintegrating, the atheist thinker Nietzsche views that as a good thing, and he wants Christian values to be torn down so that new and better values can be erected in their place. However, it occurred to me that This is an important topic even over and above Nietzsche's perspective on it. And lots of people have different ideas about where morality comes from and who are atheists and secular folk. And so it's important to talk about. And so while I still want you to have a Nietzschean overtone, a Nietzschean flavor, I'm actually going to go through the different ideas of where morality comes from and then I'll give you Nietzsche's commentary on those ideas as we go. And so I hope to kind of freshen up the conversation by talking about a variety of perspectives, but you still won't miss the Nietzschean uh, perspective, so to speak. The questions that we're gonna be talking about specifically are questions like these. Where does morality come from? What is the difference between right and wrong? Why is there a distinction between murder and self-defense, for example? Is morality a fixed constant written in the stars and in our hearts? Or is it an ever-changing and evolving system of behavior passed down from our parents and their parents before them? And then, of course, how do we know? You can't put morals in a test tube. You can't examine them under a microscope. You can't measure it with a ruler. So what are you going to do with those theories? How can you differentiate them? What have philosophers commonly said throughout history? And then lastly, Why does it matter? So I hope to walk you through the answers to those questions with three or four um, different views that have been popular, famous, and profound throughout Western history. So we'll begin with moral Platonism. Moral Platonism is the view of the ancient Greeks, which is a kind of a logical place to start, birthplace of Western philosophy. And Plato's theory of morality fit into his all-encompassing theory of forms. You see, for Plato, there are two realms. There's the earthly realm and there's the heavenly realm. And everything on Earth is simply an imperfect copy of what exists in perfect form somewhere else and in the heavenly realm. Let me give you an example. Plato asks the question, hypothetically, what is a table? What does it mean for an object to be a table? And you could answer by saying, well, a table is a flat board of wood with four legs and it's designed to set stuff on it. But then Plato would respond, ah, but a table can also be made of stone or glass. It doesn't have to have four legs, it could have three legs. And maybe there is no intention to set stuff on it at all. Does that still make it a table? And you would go, okay, yes, yes. It could have all of those things. It could be made of stone or glass or whatever. It could have three legs or four legs or 10 legs. It doesn't really matter. I don't know, geez, Plato, what is a table? And what he'd say is, a table is any object with the immaterial quality of tableness. A table is any object that is trying to mimic the perfect ideal of tableness. Let me give you another example in case that one is a little confusing. Imagine what a golden retriever is. You know what a golden retriever is. It's It's a dog with golden blonde hair, medium-sized, lovable, cute, it has this much intelligence and is this loyal and obedient and whatever, you fill in the blanks of all the attributes of a golden retriever. But every golden retriever is a little bit different. And so what does it mean for a golden retriever to be a golden retriever as opposed to any other kind of dog? I mean, if this golden retriever is a little bit shorter, this one's a little bit taller, this one's a little bit wider, this one's a little bit skinnier, what is the commonality between them? And the answer is, according to Plato, they all conform to this immaterial standard that is golden retriever-ness. All of the things, the commonalities between golden retrievers are immaterial. They're not of the physical world. You can't just reduce it to DNA because some golden retrievers have mixed DNA or defective DNA and or whatever the case may be. And so a golden retriever is any creature that, that is mimicked and modeled after the perfect idea of a golden retriever. And that idea is an abstract idea. And if none of this has made sense, if, if I'm just kind of going over your head, I've saved the best example for last. So hang on to this one. This is a great example of Plato's theory of forms. Imagine if I asked you, and I actually am going to ask you. You don't have to imagine. I'm going to ask you, and you're going to answer the question, Is there such thing as a perfect circle? Well, have you ever tried to draw a circle? Of course, you know that it's impossible to draw a perfect circle. No matter what kind of computer you had or printer you had or or how amazing of an artist you were, it is impossible to draw a perfect circle. Even if it looks perfect to the naked eye, you could get a microscope, you could zoom in, you could recognize that there are defects in it, that the curve isn't perfect. But that doesn't mean that perfect circles don't exist, does it? It just means that there aren't any here on Earth. At least that would be Plato's view. A circle is anything which is trying to mimic the perfect and immaterial form of circleness. And you know that a perfect circle has to exist. We can measure it in 360 degrees. We base geometrical shapes on them. We can build structures and, and vehicles and parts and tools off of Circleness, But we're basing it off of an immaterial idea. And so, a perfect circle does exist, but not in the real world, because you cannot find a perfect circle in the real world. But it really does exist. It exists in the realm of forms, in the heavenly realm. And then there's an appropriate form, says Plato, to everything that exists. Everything that exists is just a copy. It's like There's a perfect human, there's a perfect virtue, there's perfect everything in these abstract idea forms that are then expressed in the world. And so what does it mean to be a good person, Plato may ask? And the answer is a good person is someone who lives up to the Platonic idea of goodness and virtue and justice and truth and mercy and whatever else. So for Plato, morality is something written in the stars. It's something that exists beyond us. It's an abstract concept that is more real than the world. Like you could argue that math is more real than individual examples of it. Because even if there are two trees and then you see two more trees and then it makes four trees, the number four transcends everything. It transcends space. It transcends time. It's eternal in a sense, like geometry. For Nietzsche, of course, this is going to be dismissed out of hand. Truth doesn't exist, let alone Platonic forms for Nietzsche. So perfect circles definitely don't exist, and an ideal person doesn't exist. By the way, there's not even such a thing as a copy in, Plato, or excuse me, in Nietzsche's view, because everything just exists as an original, and it's just perspective. But from the time that Plato arrives on the scene, the only other theory that's even in the running for a very long time is called Divine Command Theory. And this idea has a lot in common with Platonic forms in the sense that divine command theory states that good and evil is written in the stars, so to speak. On both views, human beings don't decide what's good and evil, they merely recognize it. Good and evil is a feature of the universe and then human beings manage their way through those waters that already exist independent of them. Except on divine command theory, good and evil is defined by God himself. If God created the universe, then his very nature defines good and evil. If God says, don't murder, then murder is, by definition, wrong. So God comes up with the rules, and then human beings follow the rules. This is our place, this is our purpose, and that is simply the way it is. Trying to ask, well, why does God get to make the rules? is like asking why you were born, or why anything exists at all, or why we have five fingers instead of four. The answer is, because God said so, and what God says goes. And it's very possible for this to be a very unsophisticated idea, a very, you know, God's way or the highway, you just believe whatever he says. You know, we're Bible-thumping believers and we just move on, we don't think about it too hard. The truth is, is that the view actually states that the very nature of morality is the same thing as the nature of God. In the same way, math is in the nature of God, and we discover that in the universe. Or logic is in the nature of God, and we discover that in the universe. Or order, or existence, or consciousness, or being. That goes back to the whole wise or something instead of nothing conversation. And so, even though the theory can sound very primitive, the truth is is that if you actually think about it, or, or you read some literature on it, it turns out to be a very sophisticated view, especially when you start seeing the holes in other theories, which we're going to go over right now. We're going to also circle back around to divine command theory, by the way. But as we move on, I just want to say that this next idea that I talk about is very important. It's it's a central idea to the history of philosophy, and it's a foundational idea today. This next theory of where morality comes from is called the social contract theory. And The social contract theory rose sharply in popularity as the Platonic forms and the divine contract theory tapered out around the 17th and 18th centuries, And it is now one of the most important ideas from the Enlightenment. And you can understand why. At first, you have the prominence of Platonism from Athens and then divine command theory from Jerusalem. And then now finally, the Enlightenment gives us a new way to think about morality. And uh, this was written about primarily from Thomas Hobbes and and Jack Rousseau, as far as I'm uh, familiar. And this revolutionized the way modern thinkers think about morality and about society. And the idea is essentially this. Without society, without civilization, without morality, human beings are just primates. We're these animal creatures who are simply not going to last very long in the wild. We're living in a kill-or-be-killed world that we don't even think about at all because we've transcended the animal kingdom. And how did we transcend the animal kingdom? The Judeo-Christian view says that we were created to be separate from animals by God and we have the image of God. And the Greeks say that the difference between us and animals is the ability to reason. But the Enlightenment thinkers say something else. They say, well, we have actually transcended the animal kingdom by agreeing to behave by an arbitrary code of conduct. And somewhere along the way, We realized that life was better if we work together. So Thomas Hobbes wrote a book called The Leviathan, and in it he talked about morality and rights and social contract, and and he said that the natural life of man has no industry, no stores, no inventions or culture or navigation or commodities or trade, no knowledge or education, no clocks, no art, no letters, no society. Life is just continual fear and the danger of a violent death. Quote, the life of man is basically solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, End quote. Well, so how does mankind overcome this? How can we overcome the conditions of life and rise out of the food chain? Well, the answer is that we give up some of our natural rights and collectivize in order to invent new rights, which are bigger and better and and more actually efficient and effective. Rights aren't given to us by God or something, they're given to us by the community, by the people around us. They can also be taken away by the community if you violate the social contract. So to give an example, you give up your right to eat anything that you can see, and in exchange, we can have something like grocery stores. You give up your right to attack anyone who is on your property, and we can have something like mailmen, Morality is basically one giant, I scratch your back and you scratch mine. You do something for me, and I do something for you. I don't murder you, and you don't murder me. Everybody wins. Then, if someone does commit murder, or they violate the social contract, in other words, they lose their right to freedom, and so they're put in a cage, or perhaps even killed. This seems reasonable enough. I mean, it makes sense of life, the theory I mean. You shouldn't take things from stores without paying because you don't want to live in a world where stores have to close down because there's too much theft. You don't want everybody to lie and cheat and steal and murder, and so you don't do those things. And if everybody agrees to the basic rules of, you know, don't murder and pillage and rape, then we can all live happy lives. But one major foundational flaw of social contract theory is that it is a morality based on popular opinion. And can you think of anything more finicky, more dangerous, more random and arbitrary, or more volatile than public opinion? I mean, this view essentially states that the same fabric which determines fashion trends is in charge of right and wrong. So things begin to look very arbitrary very quickly. Furthermore, there's still no transcendent reason to value one table of values over another. I mean, what's the difference between the social contract of Genghis Khan versus Nazi Germany? Or what's the difference between the social contract of America in the 1920s and America in 2020? It's really not fair to say that one is better than another, they're just different. Different rules lead to different agreements and arrangements, just like contracts. But if this is the explanation for morality, then it is impossible to understand an evil social contract. It's an oxymoron. Social contracts, by definition, define right and wrong. So there's no such thing as a good or an evil social contract. There's just a variety of social contracts and then personal preference. So you can't say that Genghis Khan ought not rape and pillage. And you cannot say that the law ought to recognize gay marriage. Or you cannot say that an apartheid state is unjust. All you can say is how you feel, what your preference is. You can say, well, I prefer this or that. Morality becomes an ice cream flavor. Just take your pick. Heck, you probably just like your social contract more because you grew up with it. If you were a barbarian, you would have a completely different social contract and therefore a different taste. But if that's your view, then barbarism isn't even wrong. It's just distasteful to your current presuppositions and opinions. Kidnapping people and selling them as a slave isn't actually wrong, it's just not something you like to do. Sometimes you'll hear when you're arguing with people about social contract theory, they'll try to smuggle in objective morality into the equation by using language like, well, this social contract is better than that one because dot, dot, dot. But you have to continually remind those people that there is no such thing as moral progress on this view. There is only change. There's no such thing as better, there's only different, because morality is decided upon by a vote. So if everyone thinks something is immoral, it is by definition immoral. And if someone thinks that there's behavior that's good and just, then by definition, it is good and just. And Nietzsche accepted this view to an extent, but he also recognizes its arbitrariness, But then again, that's his entire point, that morality is completely arbitrary and it's been imposed upon you and you've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker like a slave, regardless of where it came from. So Nietzsche is perfectly comfortable saying that there is no such thing as evil. There's just things that you don't like. Cruelty isn't evil. It's quite fun for the one being cruel. Remember, for Nietzsche, evil is just what a rabbit calls the fox. So listen to this quote from Nietzsche. This is a good one. Quote, It follows that only after a corpus of laws has been established can there be any talk of right and wrong. To speak of right and wrong per se makes no sense at all. No act of violence, rape, exploitation, destruction is intrinsically unjust, since life itself is violent, rapacious, exploitive, and destructive, and cannot be conceived of otherwise. Even more disturbingly, we have to admit that from the biological point of view, legal conditions are necessarily exceptional conditions since they limit the radical life, will bent on power, and must finally subserve as means life's collective purpose, which is to create greater power constellations. To accept any legal system as sovereign and universal, to accept it not merely as an instrument in the struggle against power complexes, but as a weapon against that struggle, in the sense of During's communist cliché that everyone must be met and regarded as though they were its equal, it's an anti-vital principle which can only bring about man's utter demoralization and, indirectly, a reign of nothingness, end quote. So Nietzsche goes farther if you caught it. He says that if you try to say that morality is objective and there's a transcendent moral law that God has established, if you take your social contract and pretend like it is divine, you'll go insane. You will tacitly accept that someone else's rule book is actually the true rule book that everyone must follow. When in reality, their book is just a weapon to try and control life and make it manageable. And it's a weapon that people willingly swallow in order to give themselves guardrails. But when you see the injustice and the nauseating cliches like the equality and dignity of every human individual, for example, you'll just become demoralized and you'll throw up your arms and say, screw it, I'd rather watch it all burn rather than uphold my narrow view of justice. Nietzsche pointed out that social liberalism, in its broadest sense, leads to absurdity unless you have a foundation of the existence of God. As soon as you eject God, then why should everybody be equal in dignity and value? Why should everybody be equally esteemed and treated well? And pretending like they should, after you reject a belief in God, will just make you go crazy. And he's right. If you tear God out of the universe, then God's rules must go with him. And I've discovered a universal truth in my studies of this kind of stuff. Everybody wants other people to follow God's rules, and they want God's rules when it benefits them. Nobody wants to be lied to or cheated on or stolen from or murdered. They want to be atheists, but they want to keep the rules that God has. They want to be secular, but they also want to have meaning and purpose, and they want the world to make sense. Well, good luck. Because it's a square peg in a round hole, and it just doesn't work. It's not happening. The only way to do it is just suspend your disbelief. Just pretend. Anyway, that's social contract theory, and it has a pretty serious Achilles heel, and that is that, number one, you cannot define progress because every moral revolutionary starts out as an outcast, and then number two, you cannot carry morality above the social contract so you cannot criticize other social contracts. And this, as it turns out, is a fatal flaw when you want to talk about real right and wrong instead of just opinion. And that's what Nietzsche said. He said, if you try to say that there is justice in the world, you will go mad. There isn't justice in the world. And you just forget about trying to prove that there is or that there should be. You guys are all just making games and writing these fun little contracts, but it's fake. And there can be responses to these objections, and social contract theorists often can uh, adopt their older brother view of utilitarianism, and utilitarianism is basically the view of the Vulcans. Good is defined as the maximum amount of well-being for the most amount amount of people, and the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So utilitarianism can patch the whole of basic social contract theory by saying, aha, We have a mechanism for progress, and we have a way to say that some social contracts are better than others because the social contracts should try to maximize well-being for the most amount of people. But then Nietzsche comes right in and says, Well, why? Why should we strive for the best possible good for the most possible people? And by the way, you still actually haven't defined good. But why not strive for the best possible life for a small and strong elite? Nietzsche, along with many others, Point out that utilitarians have to assume a moral foundation before building their structure. They have to say, well, good is defined by the best possible well being for the most possible people. That's what we should be striving for. And then they go on to explain what that might look like. But they literally just made it up. They made up their definition of good and they assumed that if it's going to be good, it has to be for everybody and it has to be to a maximum capacity. But Nietzsche just goes, Why? And he destroys the entire thing. When the utilitarians sneak their conclusion into the premises by begging the question, Nietzsche calls them on it. And here's a great quote. This is a chilling one. The question, what is this or that table of values really worth, must be viewed under a variety of perspectives. For the question, valuable to what end, is one of extraordinary complexity. For example, Something obviously valuable in terms of the longest possible survival of a race, or of its best adaptation to a given climate, or of the preservation of its greatest numbers, would by no means have the same value if it were a question of developing a more powerful type. The welfare of the many and the welfare of the few are radically opposed ends. To consider the former a priori the higher value may be left to the naivety of English biologists all sciences are now under the obligation to prepare the ground for the future task of the philosopher, which is to solve the problem of value, to determine the true hierarchy of values, End quote. Did you hear that? Leave it to the naive and English biologists to assume that the greatest good is the flourishing of everybody or the survival of the whole species. Why can't the greatest good be the best possible experience for just a few human beings? Those are radically different goals. And Nietzsche says that now, the task of the philosopher is to determine the true hierarchy of values. We must reject Christianity, reject the naive English meta-ethics, and create something new, something truly valuable. And my criticism of utilitarianism is going to be very similar to Nietzsche. First of all, I'm going to agree with all of his criticisms. It's very naive and intellectually dishonest to assume that your new self-constructed moral ends get to be a self-evident axiom before you establish your moral means. In other words, you cannot assume the best possible good before asserting how to distribute that goodness. After all, the question we are asking is, where does morality come from? And if you use utilitarianism to patch the fatal flaws of social contract theory, you're just left with two leaky buckets. Furthermore, I can imagine some pretty horrible utilitarian societies. For example, what if it was possible to enslave every tenth child who was ever born in order to maximize goodness and happiness for everybody else? I mean, how many problems could we fix if every tenth child was just born a slave? I imagine we could fix a lot of problems, but would that be right? Would that be moral? Well, on the utilitarian view, they have a very hard time saying that it would not because perhaps the goodness experienced by nine-tenths of people would outweigh the suffering of one-tenth of people. While a common-sense moral view can look at that and say, that's ridiculous. But that's because you don't get your views from social contract. You get your views from something else. Well, maybe it's evolutionary biology where you get your views of right and wrong. So that's the next theory we'll talk about. The evolutionary biology theory basically states that morality comes from our evolution. Somewhere along the line, human beings began developing a system of accepted behavior because it was beneficial for reproduction. Usually in our modern day, this view is combined with the social contract theory. But it basically says that your good boy and good girl behavior stems from generation after generation of figuring out what works and improving upon the mistakes of the past. This view has a few upgrades from the social contract view, namely that the system of progress is built in. You don't have to argue why one set of customs is better, you just have to keep living and eventually the better customs will win out. Except, of course, for when they don't and then you have to forcibly jam your views through legislature and social engineering in order to get everyone to agree with you, but that's not the point, that's not That's not here or there, we won't pay any attention to that. Because this view is all about the fact that somewhere down the line, human beings figured out that you have to behave a certain way in order to get accepted by others and build a society. Just about every other secular public intellectual I can think of accepts this theory in some form or another. Michael Ruse is a philosopher of science, and he wrote an article called Evolutionary Theory and Christian Ethics in a book called The Darwinian Paradigm, and he has a great quote to sum this view. Listen to this, quote, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective meaning, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when someone says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless. Such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deep meaning is illusory. End quote. To quote another source, the atheist Paul Kurtz, in arguing for evolutionary biology as the grounding of morality, also says quote, The moral principles that govern our behavior are rooted in habit and custom, feeling and fashion. End quote. But if that's true, then the rapist isn't actually doing anything wrong. He's just acting in a seriously unfashionable manner. He's acting out of habit with maybe other humans or other customs. He's acting out of concordance with the feelings of other people and out of fashion of the society. Remember, nothing wrong, just out of fashion. PSAs against rape are just PSAs against wearing socks with your sandals, except with a little more drama. It's not morally wrong, it's just counter to evolution. It's unpleasant to the extreme, at least to the victim. But that's all. The criticism of this view is obvious. If morality is simply an expression of evolution, then there is no reason to be moral. Morality is an illusion, exactly as Nietzsche says. The ethicist Richard Taylor makes a powerful point when he points this out. He says, if morality comes from the animal kingdom, If it comes from evolution, then there is really no morality at all. When a hawk seizes a fish, it kills it, but it does not murder it. When a lion kills a gazelle and then the hyenas scare away the lion and they eat the corpse themselves, they are not stealing the gazelle. These things are not forbidden, and so there are no moral codes that have been broken. Clearly, the same concept doesn't apply for human beings. That's preposterous. Nobody really believes in evolutionary biology as an explanation for true morality, at least not people who are having intellectual conversations about it. If something bad happens to you, you don't say, ah, the social contract has been broken, and you are acting out of accordance with your evolutionary biology. No, you say you have violated a moral law, and you deserve to be held accountable. If your business partner sues you and takes the entire business, even though you worked way harder and it was your idea in the first place, nobody says, well, survival of the fittest, I guess. Maybe I'll try to prove that I'm still the fittest by working my way back up or suing them in court. That's absurd. No, you demand justice. You say, I've been actually wronged. You done something that you shouldn't done did. That's the scientific way to do it. You should probably phrase it that way in court. I'm sure you would... get your arbitration in your favor, undoubtedly. (laughs) I mean, for crying out loud, though, on a more serious note, our current legal system in the United States is literally based off the fact that our laws are subject to revision by the courts of a higher law, which is the moral law. And the moral law should override the legal law. And the legal law needs to change in order to correspond with the moral law. And all of that is assumed when people say we should change the laws. What you're saying is that there's a law higher than the current law that should bend in order to change the current law. But if you don't believe in a law above the law, then you don't believe in ever changing the law. It's absurd. And I'm amazed how many people don't see this. They don't see that if you believe in changing the law, You believe in trying to get the law to acquiesce to what is called a moral good. But you have to believe in a moral better and a moral good in order to believe in changing laws. And of course, everybody does believe in that. So therefore, no one really believes in social contract theory or evolutionary biology theory. There's something else at play, something else that they smuggle into the conversation, that they believe without even realizing that they believe it. They act as if they believe in a divine command theory view, that reality and morality are obvious. But then they try to explain it in another way. And you see, Nietzsche sees right through all of this. He sees right through the flaws of evolutionary biology to explain morals, which is why he believes that all morals are actually a lie. But listen to his commentary on how evolution and social contract shaped our early development, back when people believed the lie of morality. This is interesting. Quote, The poorer the memory of mankind has been, the more terrible have been its customs. The severity of all primitive penal codes gives us somewhat of an idea of how difficult it must have been for man to overcome his forgetfulness and to drum into these slaves of momentary whims and desires a few basic requirements for communal living. By such methods of cruel and unusual punishment, the individual was finally taught to remember five or six, I won't which entitled him to participate in the benefits of society. And indeed, with the aid of this sort of memory, people eventually came to their senses. And what an enormous price man had to pay for reason, seriousness, control over his emotions, those grand human prerogatives and cultural showpieces. How much blood and horror lies beyond all good things, end quote. Nietzsche gives us such a grim view of life, such a savage existence. He says, how many people had to be brutalized before they learned not to sleep with each other's spouses? And how you take for granted that most people try not to cheat on one another. How many cavemen had to be clubbed to death because they refused to pay respect and homage to the leader? And now you live in a world where you say sir and please and thank you to everyone you come across. So again, to sum up, Evolutionary biology cannot explain morality because, number one, you're still left with the question of Genghis Khan. You know, it's said that Genghis Khan and his offspring raped so many women that his genes made it into about 8% of modern Asia. According to Natural Selection, Genghis Khan was extremely successful. And if you want to tie morality to evolution, you have to say that Genghis Khan was an exemplar of moral virtue. But this is absurd, and nobody thinks that. And the reason that nobody thinks that is because we get our morality from somewhere else, not from evolution. And then, of course, if you're taking notes, the second major plot hole, so to speak, in the evolutionary theory story is that there's really no such thing as morality on that view. There's only reproduction. Hawks eat fish. They don't murder them. So if we get our morality from evolution, then murderers are just people who commit acts that we don't really like. They're not evil people. They're just people who are profoundly unfashionable, so to speak. So the next theory that we're going to talk about is called the theory of altruism. And after all that icky stuff, after all the views of cold, harsh reality, we finally get a view that has a very positive view of human nature. Nietzsche's going to have a field day with this. Morality is based on our feelings. Maybe our feelings come from evolution, sure. Maybe that's not really the point. The point is that it makes me feel good to do good, and so I do good. And it makes me feel bad to do bad, and so I don't. All human beings are naturally good people trying to do the right thing, and because people are naturally good, we just know what good is, and we can't help but try and do it. Evil, then, is the corruption of human nature, whether it's because you were neglected as a child or because you're poor or because you're a victim. That's why you're evil. So evil is explained by a deviation of good. And the cycle of evil people creating more evil people continues circling around and around. And if only we could spread more goodness, then maybe the world would just be a peachy, rosy place. And sometimes the corruption of people can be for various reasons, depending on the thinker. Sometimes it can be the struggle of life itself that corrupts people, which leaves children naturally innocent because they don't struggle as much. Or sometimes it's civilization and city life, which are the corrupting forces, which prompts a noble savage, a, a primitive person from an unreached tribe somewhere who is said to be pure and innocent because they haven't been corrupted by industry and the railroad and corporate greed. Some views are more psychologically based that evil comes from our parents, where we're born naturally innocent and good, but our parents somehow end up passing on their evil characteristics to their children just in virtue of being human. Of course, then I have to ask, well, wouldn't that mean that human beings are basically evil? But whatever, they're not going to actually answer that. And then, of course, you'll see this kind of view expressed in the Romantic era more than the modern era. Well, In the modern era too, but most certainly in the romantic era where people are generally optimistic about other human beings. These kind of people today are the kind of people who watch the People Are Awesome compilations on YouTube and Instant Justice compilations. And they basically assume that the world is an okay place if people just would follow their conscience. And some of them do, and most of them do. And so the world is just, it's basically okay. Well, Nietzsche's having none of this. Nietzsche's view of human nature is that mankind is a conglomeration of depravity, cruelty, and insanity. Look at this quote. Close observation will spot numerous survivals of the oldest and most thorough human delight, cruelty and torture, in our own culture. In both Daybreak and Beyond Good and Evil, I have pointed to that progressive sublimation and apotheosis of cruelty, which not only characterizes the whole history of higher culture, but in a sense constitutes it. Not so very long ago, a royal wedding or a great public celebration would have been incomplete without executions, tortures, or a noble household with some person whose office it was to serve as a butt for everyone's malice and cruel teasing. To behold suffering gives pleasure, but to cause another to suffer affords an even greater pleasure. This severe statement expresses an old, powerful, human, all-too-human sentiment, though the monkeys too might endorse it, for it is reported that they heralded and preluded man in devising bizarre cruelties." Once again, Nietzsche's critique seems basically potent, The idea that altruism is the basis for morality seems crushed under two fundamental observations. Number one, human beings are not naturally good. And if they were, where did evil come from? And why is evil so overwhelmingly experienced in the world today? And number two, you still need a transcendent moral code to define right and wrong. You can't just say, oh, well, we follow our feelings. Well, excuse me, some cultures help their neighbors, and other cultures eat their neighbors, both based on feeling. So which do you prefer, and how are you feeling today? It's a very, very shallow thinker who just assumes that everyone thinks like you, and everyone is trying to do the right thing. You're wrong on both accounts. Most people don't think like you, and many, many people have no interest in doing the right thing. Our pop culture wants to downplay the brokenness of human beings, which is so funny because it's what we see every day in every part of the world without exception or fail. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian thinker, and he put it very well, quote, "...in our educational sophistication and philosophical brazenness, we may mock the belief in the depravity of man as an antiquated idea, but it resurfaces every day, in every life, and in every culture." destroying civilization in its march, end quote. The Christian view is that all human beings, all human beings are essentially corrupt. It's not that we perform evil deeds, it's that we want to perform evil deeds. It's that our consciousnesses are literally warped to prefer the pleasures of evil. And not that everyone is out there raping and pillaging and destroying everything, we do have the capacity to do good. We are, after all, created in the image of God. That's how we recognize good. But we've been tainted by evil. It's both. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, human beings are both noble and cruel. He he talked about that a lot, the nobility and the cruelty of man. In the words of Greg Kokel, we are beautiful, but we are broken. Human beings have such a profound capacity for beautiful things. But we are broken. Well, if that's true, if human beings are made of this clay of goodness but crushed by the stamp of evil, what view makes the most sense of that? What view makes sense out of the reality that ordinary, everyday human beings recognize a transcendent moral law, a law that we discover within ourselves and within the universe that is beyond us, What worldview can explain the fact that we know the difference between right and wrong, that we ought to hold people accountable to even a higher standard than what's legal or what they get caught for? What view of morality is just as true on a desert island with five people versus Saudi Arabia with hundreds of thousands of people or China with millions of people or Canada with however many people are up there? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, It's not social contract theory, and it's not evolutionary biology, and it's not altruism. Social contract theory dissolves as soon as you realize that morality cannot be determined by a vote, or by however many people you have in your society. It can't be evolution. Evolution doesn't dictate moral behavior. It can't even describe moral behavior. And then Platonism is a great idea, moral Platonism, but at the end of the day, Even if justice and goodness and kindness do exist in a perfect Platonic form, laws must come from lawgivers. And you can't break the law just because there's a governing body that creates the laws in the first place. If moral laws worked like physical laws, as Plato claimed, then contradicting a moral law would be like contradicting gravity. But in case you haven't noticed, we contradict gravity every single day when we get out of bed, and there are no moral consequences. And then, of course, there's the Nietzschean view. Morality is a lie assumed by the weak in order to justify their weakness. And it turns out that the existence of a God who grounds the rules of morality by his very nature in the same way that he grounds order and logic by his very nature is a pretty good explanation. It makes sense of all the facts that we know, and it doesn't have any major flaws that can't be addressed. And we'll talk about a potential objection in a minute. But I actually want to say one more thing about Nietzsche before we move on. There's a diamond of wisdom in the rough of Nietzsche's work, right here. Nietzsche pointed out accurately, I think, that there's a major flaw in the reasoning of most people's self-assessment. Most people look at themselves and they ask, am I a good person? And if you haven't done anything particularly evil recently, you'll conclude, well, I must be a good person. After all, I haven't really hurt anybody and I'm better than that guy over there. But that doesn't logically follow. Just because you haven't done anything evil or broken any laws doesn't even mean that you're a good person. Maybe it just means you're too cowardly. Maybe it means you're incompetent or just haven't had the opportunity. Perhaps you would swipe a $20 bill if you were, con- if you were absolutely convinced that you could get away with it. Perhaps you would cheat on your spouse if someone came on to you really hard and you were completely alone and isolated and you knew you could get away with it. You probably would tell that person off at work if you weren't afraid of losing your job. So the question has to be asked, if you're too afraid to do what you truly want to do and if you have to spend all your time reining yourself back and biting your tongue, can you really consider yourself a good person? There's an age-old conversation about how power corrupts people, and when you have absolute power, then the chances of you being corrupted by that are near 100%. But the truth is, is that power is not the problem. Power is an abstract principle. It doesn't corrupt people. People are the problem. Most men would assemble themselves a harem if they had the means and the power to do so, and there was no constraining forces like social expectations or pressures. It's not at all that power corrupts, it's that human beings are corrupt, and power just enables them to display and exert their corruption. People are little miniature tyrants, they just don't have a kingdom to rule over, and so they fester and become angry and bitter and jealous, or they gossip and they tear others down, or they tyrannize their family or their co-workers, or whatever else they have control over. The same goes for money. Most people are modest with their money, and they're decent with their money, and they don't really have that many problems. But it's not because they're virtuous. It's because they're restricted. And when people win the lottery, they're reduced to ruin. First of all, if you have any kind of a drug or alcohol problem and you win the lottery, you're done. And even if you were a generally normal guy, it's going to be very, very hard not to spend all your money on fancy cars and houses and showing off and building your ego and retiring early and being a sloth and a glutton and all kinds of things. And it's not the money that's the problem. It's you that's the problem. It's just the money that give you the means to expose who you really are on the inside. But anyway, it's only the Christian view of morality that can make sense of all of these realities, of the fact that human beings are essentially corrupt but still have the mark of the image of God. And I've already hinted at this several times, but the Christian view of morality is not that, well, God says so, and so that's what we have to do. The view is that Christian morality is baked into the nature of reality, like logic, or math, or order, or being, or consciousness. It's a part of the nature of God. It exists as a transcendent, objective law over all human beings, and because we're created in the image of God, we have a basic sense of right and wrong. But because we're fallen, we not only commit evil deeds, but we desire to commit evil deeds. And that's why we need God's goodness and his mercy and his justice to overpower those kinds of things and and rescue us from ourselves. That's the, That's the gospel. That's the view. That's the Christian message. I literally explained Christianity right then. And obviously... Some moral equations are more complicated and difficult than others, just like there are math equations that are more complicated and difficult than others, and even math equations that people do not know the answer for, and they disagree about them, just like morality. But that doesn't mean that there aren't true answers out there. Just like math or logic, it can be complicated and difficult, but nobody disagrees that those things are actually objective. The same is clearly true about morality. And I want to make one thing absolutely clear. God's rules and laws are not arbitrary. There's an ancient objection to the divine command theory called the Euthyro dilemma. And the Euthyro dilemma goes like this. Quote, "Is God good because he wills it, or does God will something and therefore it is good?" End quote. That's the question. I'm going to repeat it. Is God good because he wills it, or does he will it and therefore it's good? To go back to murder, it's a very clear-cut case of evil, right? Just like 2 plus 2 is 4 is a very clear-cut case of math. The Euthyro Dilemma asks, Okay, so does God wake up one day and stretch and then create the earth and go, Alright, murder is wrong. And then the whole universe just bends to that and suddenly the universe is wrong because, well, God just said it. It seems pretty arbitrary if that's the case. Couldn't God have just as easily said that murder is right and drinking carbonated soda is wrong, or wearing clothes with two different uh, fabrics stitched together is wrong. But if that's not how it works, then God must desire something because it's good in and of itself, of its own nature. But then God is not determining what's good. He's simply adhering to what's good, which means God looks over his shoulder and looks beyond himself to know what good and evil is. And if God is looking over himself then you don't actually need God to determine right and wrong because there's already a standard that God himself is looking for. And so again, no need for God there. But if you've listened closely, I've actually already answered the objection. The questioner is positing a false dilemma. It's not an either-or. The nature of God is that he is good, and the nature of God is that he desires and commands good things. It's just as foundational to himself as order, logic, math, language, consciousness, being, existence. To ask why is it like that is to ask why does a circle have 360 degrees? To ask why God is good or whether God has to look to himself or look to something beyond himself is, is an absurd question. When we say God, we are describing the arbiter of morality. And not as if he's the arbiter of morality, meaning he chooses it. He is the definition of morality in the first place. The term goodness or perfect goodness, that transcendent standard that we all acknowledge or implicitly live by, is what we call God. He is our perfect ideal. God is the thing that we look in the universe and discover. Because without him, math, logic, existence, consciousness, language, order, morality are absurd and unintelligible in the same way that it's unintelligible to think of a circle that doesn't have 360 degrees. I would like to share one last thought, and if you catch anything, this is it. I've saved the best for last to conclude our conversation about morality and ethics and right and wrong and the origins of our beliefs, I want to impress upon you how important this conversation is. We aren't asking how many angels can dance on the pin of a needle. We aren't asking some superficial factoid or trivia question, and this isn't just a philosophical game or a theological exercise. Every single hour of every day, you make moral choices. Will you be kind or harsh? Will you have control over your anger or not? Will you indulge in lust or not? Will you allow jealousy to grow or not? Does your self-image dominate your thoughts? Or are you thinking about other people? We are constantly bombarded with moral quandaries. The question of the grounding for morality is essentially the question, is there a difference between right and wrong? That's the question. Every view we've discussed says there is basically no difference between right and wrong, and morality is either an illusion or a man-made construct or an irrelevant ideal in the clouds. Only the Christian view gives us the resources to say that there's a difference between right and wrong. and justice does matter. Our behavior does matter. Our society does matter. Our worldview does matter. And if you expect human beings to strive for the perfect ideal, You will have to give them a reason to do so, and you will have to make sense of the fact that they are beautiful and they are broken. They are noble and they are cruel. Viktor Frankl was an intellectual, a psychologist, and a Holocaust survivor. He said something very, very powerful about the Holocaust, and I know I've quoted him before, and we plan on reading his book in the future, but this is a very good one. As a matter of fact, if you've only heard one quote from all of well-read Christians so far, this might be the most important one. And you've listened all the way to the end of this podcast to hear it, so listen. This is why we're doing this. This is why well-read Christian exists. This is why a Christian voice in the culture is important. And I'm sure I'll end up reading this quote many times because it's a power, it is a powerful one and it is true. Are you ready? Quote. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of hereditary and environmental causes, or, as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. What he's saying there is that horrible things happen when people lose the belief in the spark of divinity, when they lose the belief of transcendent morals. And I believe that the church is supposed to combat the nihilism and the emptiness and the absurdity of life without God, And I believe that well-read Christian will play a role and hopefully will play an effective role at demonstrating the reasonableness and the truthfulness of the Christian worldview so that the culture doesn't slip farther and farther from the reasonable and necessary rules that God has given and represents in his own being. And when you reject God and you reject his rules, chaos and nihilism reigns exactly as Nietzsche said. And once again, I am very, very glad that the death of God was a bit exaggerated and announced prematurely. It seems to me that Christianity has always thrived, no matter the culture. It's always existed underneath the surface. And I hope and pray that Wellard Christian can be a little tiny piece of God's plan to influence even one or two or 12 people. Or Lord willing, 100 or 200 or two dozen thousand billion people. That would be great. Thank you for listening to the Well-Word Christian Podcast. and I'll see you next time. Well, I don't see you. It is a podcast. But tune in next time. Viktor Frankl was an intellectual a psychologist and a Holocaust survivor. That's ha-ha. horrible. Are you allowed to make a joke like that? I mean, what if you stumble upon the word Holocaust and then you make a big old funny skit joke out of it and you throw it at the end of a blooper reel? Is that like an OK thing? Am I going to get in trouble for that? I don't know. Ugh, whatever I'm gonna do it anyway. Time for take seven. Jeez, I love my wife, but does she have to do the dishes while I'm recording, and then do I have to not notice until I've already recorded it, and then do I have to then lose my tongue and be like da 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 all right, let's do this. Come out <laughs> Victor Frankel was an intellectual, a psychologist, and a ha. Unbelievable, man.